0: Good evening. First of all, thank you all for coming. My name is Paris Denard. I am the events director here at the McCain Institute. This is our first debate uh, here in Phoenix and so we're very excited to have all of you here. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Before we begin, let me remind you this is gonna be live streamed online and so I want all of you to, if you have a smartphone or some type of device, put it on silent or vibrate. However, don't turn it off. Because I want you to use it throughout the entirety of this toni- of tonight's debate. So, if you have not liked us on Facebook, if you're not following us on Instagram, if you're not following us on Twitter, Google Plus, our YouTube page, please do so. You can find us very simply at McCain Institute. And so, throughout tonight's debate, please be sure to utilize all of the hashtags of MI Debates Drones as you begin. So, without further ado, I'd like to bring up to the podium our Executive Director of the McCain Institute, Ambassador Kurt Volker. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And let me let our debaters uh, take their seats here in the room. And uh, Aaron, if you just want to take a chair over there, that would be great. And uh, welcome. Uh, Welcome to this evening's uh, debate concerning the use of lethal drone strikes. Right at the outset, I want to say thank you to the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and to the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations for joining us in putting this uh, debate together here in Phoenix, first time that we have the opportunity as McCain Institute to do that here. Um, as I uh, was introduced, my name is Kurt Volker, I have the good fortune to be the Executive Director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership, which is a part of Arizona State University, and we have uh, presence both in Washington, D.C. and here in Tempe, Arizona. Our mission is to advance character-driven leadership at home and around the world, contribute to humanitarian action, and to make better designs for better decisions in national and international policy. And you can find us at mccaininstitute.org. Tonight's debate is part of a series of structured, time debates on some of the most difficult foreign policy issues facing our nation. We've had previous debates on Syria, on Afghanistan, on Iran, on the defense budget, and tonight we'll be looking at the issue of lethal drone strikes. Uh, Through our debate series, we aim to illuminate the key challenges that our country has to deal with. We aim scrupulously to avoid partisanship and to get deeply into the difficult decisions that our leaders and our decision makers need to make. Before kicking off the debate this evening, I want to introduce Paul Johnson from the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations, for him to say a few words of welcome as well. Thank
2: you, Ambassador. Um, My name is Paul Johnson. I'm the president of the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations, we're an Arizona-based membership organization that um, attempts to educate our leaders here in Arizona and our members about foreign policy issues. And we're thrilled to be one of the co-sponsors of this first McCain Institute debate that takes place here in Arizona on such a fascinating topic. I got a little bit of a preview of some of the things that are going to be talked about uh, this evening, and it it really is going to be fascinating. So our thanks go out to uh, Senator and Mrs. McCain, Ambassador Volker, and Claire Merkel for including the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations in this. And we look forward to a vigorous and interesting debate. Thank you.
1: Uh, thank you, Paul, and if I could now, I'd like to introduce the man whose family was uh, given the name to this institute and whose tradition of character-driven leadership and service to our nation has inspired everything that we seek to do. Senator McCain. Thank
3: you, Curtin. and thank you all for being here, and I especially want to thank uh, the individuals on this panel. Um, they're highly qualified. They're informed. And the debate and discussion that you are about to observe is exactly what's going to happen on the floor of the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. This is an issue that needs to be decided by the President and the Congress. And it's a serious one. And that is, it got a lot to do with how the United States uses its power and under what circumstances. And so I'm... I'm eagerly looking uh, forward to our participants and I must uh, also tell you that there's a subset by the way of this and I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it, but there's a huge bureaucratic fight going on right now in Washington as to whether drones are controlled by the CIA or by the Department of Defense and it's been fascinating to watch them try to slit each other's throats. So. I I really want to thank our, our panel for being here, and believe me, this debate is something that needs to be held all over America, but particularly in the halls of Congress, working with the President of the United States, because it is of the utmost seriousness, except for those of you that think that Al Qaeda and other terrorist organizations are going away. This issue and this challenge is going to be with us for a long time. I thank all of you for being here. I had a 45-minute prepared remarks on the North Korean nuclear buildup. I will save that for the next time we are together. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you, Senator. And I want to mention as well, we are thrilled not only to have Senator McCain with us, but Mrs. Cindy McCain as well. And I also see (laughs) – I'll see one of our member of the Board of Trustees, Ms. Sharon Harper, and I know another is due to join us, uh, or I see him now, Jeff Cunningham. (coughs) If there's any others I missed, I apologize. And uh, let's uh, get rolling here. Um, Tonight's debate is going to focus on the issue of lethal drone strikes. Are they an effective tool in fighting terrorists? People have already taken so many American lives. Or are they creating more terrorists? Can we be sure we are killing only those people who are true terrorist combatants or are relying too heavily on loose intelligence and hitting too many innocents in the process? And what will be our view of other powers, such as Russia or China or Iran, start using their own lethal drone strikes against their own perceived terrorists? And what does this say about us as a nation if we're a country with a permanent hit list administered by the president himself? We have four distinguished debaters here tonight. A former colleague who is ambassador to Pakistan, another who is a lieutenant general uh, overseeing drone operations, law professors from Arizona State University and Pepperdine University who are expert in this issue of drone strikes. This is meant to be a structured and timed debate in order to give fair and equal hearing to all points of view, but we do want it to be lively and dynamic and interactive. You will have an opportunity to ask questions and uh, I encourage you to do so and also to really put it as a question, and uh, let our debaters express the, uh, the arguments uh, as they are set to do. As Paris has said, phone's on silent, but do tweet, hashtag MI, McCain Institute, hashtag MI uh, debate drones. After the opening of the debate, as I said, there'll be questions, and uh, right now let me take the uh, opportunity to introduce our distinguished moderator, a professor here at Arizona State's uh, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and a broadcast journalist himself, Aaron Brown. Thank you.
4: Uh, thank you, that's great. Senator McCain, it's uh, It's wonderful to see you. Uh, I will say that Senator McCain was a frequent and perfect guest on uh, the show I anchored. He was interesting always and available almost always and that's what we cared about. It's nice to see you. I was thinking today about all of this and I thought, um, welcoming you to the Cronkite School, how pleased Walter would be uh, at a night like this. A thoughtful, civil and important conversation about an issue facing uh, all of us as Americans—it's the kind of conversation Walter uh, would relish being a part of—and I like to think that he is somewhere in the larger audience uh, listening to our work today. Um, let me let me give a brief—I'm um, going to cut down the introduction a little bit—to um, our panel. Um, th- this is a Senator McCain alluded to and and I'm sure all of you understand, this is a hugely complicated question that defies the kind of simple black and white answers that our politics often present to us, and we will not present it in kind of simple black and white terms. It's just not that sort of thing. Greg McNeil is a professor of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, focusing on some of the very issues that bring us here tonight, the intersection of law, security, and emerging technologies. His work includes uh, helping the Army train soldiers to prevent harm to civilians, as well as the legal work on the military tribunals at Guantanamo. His partner in this discussion is Major General James Marks, Spider Marks. General Marks is a West Point grad and in 30 years of service has just about held, had just about held every leadership position imaginable and it was great to meet tonight. Uh, The other side of the question um, will be presented by Ambassador Cameron Munter who is now on the faculty at Pomona in Claremont, California, but had what is perhaps the hardest foreign policy job in the American government. He was the ambassador to Pakistan. And Daniel Rothenberg is a professor of politics and global studies here at ASU and is currently co-editing a book on drone politics with my old friend and CNN colleague Peter Bergen called Drone Wars. It is nice to have all of you here and let's go to work. Ambassador and Professor Rothenberg, let's begin with you, and you guys can divide your five minutes up as you please. You're not going to make the case that we shouldn't ever use drones. You're going to make the case what?
5: Very good. Well, I'll begin. My name's Cameron Munter. I had the good fortune, or bad fortune as the case may be, to be ambassador to Pakistan between 2010 and 2012 during a time of uh, a number of drone strikes took place drone strikes of different types that were very controversial. I'd like to make a few points in that brief two and a half minutes that I've been given. One is that drones are a, a, a weapon that can be, if used properly, a very humane weapon, a very precise weapon, a weapon that can do things that other weapons cannot. And there are people in Pakistan, especially those people in the tribal areas, who uh, newspaper men have found out actually support the idea of the drones, because they have uh, less collateral damage than, say, traditional weapons. Nonetheless, if you're going to use a weapon like this, and if you're going to talk about the complex legal, ethical, policy issues that we have to deal deal with today, we must not lose sight of the fact that we need a strategy, a long-term goal within which the drones must function. One of the problems we had in Pakistan when I was there was that we seemed to have as our goal to eliminate Al-Qaeda. And I would argue to you, as I argued then, eliminating al-Qaeda is not a goal, it is a means to an end. The goal is the protection of the United States and its allies, preventing a catastrophic attack on the United States, working hard to make sure that we have a long and sustainable strategic uh, power, especially in that part of the world. When we began to see the elimination of al-Qaeda as a goal, We began to uh, uh, eliminate other elements in the policy. We began to use the drones, in my opinion, indiscriminately. And the indiscriminate use of drones can be very, very difficult. Because what it did, among other things, was that it caused a public uh, 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 outrage against drones and made our long-term goal of having security and stability in that region more difficult. Using using drones as long-term artillery To help our soldiers in Afghanistan makes perfect sense if the idea is force protection. But for those people who are worried about a broader question, it's very dangerous to start thinking that way. I would argue, as I did at that time, that our main goal is to figure out in this region, politically, what is the great prize? Is it Afghanistan with 25 million people? Or is it Pakistan with 200 million people and 100 nuclear weapons? Which country do you want to get right? Now, this is a tough kind of question, because no military commander wants to do anything that would not allow him or her to protect his or her soldiers, but using drones across the border in the way that we did, using them in so-called signature strikes, was a difficult and I believe sometimes erroneous decision. We have to have the debate about what this particular weapon is for, in which ways is it legal, but in which ways is it effective. The final point that I want to make in the brief time, I'm coming up to the, to the end here, is that we have uh, decided that we must uh, maintain secrecy under, in the way that uh, the, uh, the drone strikes are used in Pakistan, for example. That had prevented me, as an ambassador, from being able to reach out both to the American and to the Pakistani public to give an assessment to the people of these two countries about what the effectiveness of drones was. Again, there are legal considerations. There are reasons why this, this program is secret. There's reasons why different, different, uh, different arguments are made. But my point was, if you're going to have a public debate, if you're going to bring the publics on your side, you have to figure out a way to talk honestly about drones in a way that's not limited. I'll turn it over to my colleague.
6: Um, thank you all for coming here tonight. Thank you very much for the, to the McCain's, McCain Institute. Um, What I want to talk about is a broader picture of some of the problems that drones bring up. Uh, I hope we'll be able to touch on the various issues that make drones specific. Uh, Drones are actually a a first signal of the transformation of warfare in a series of ways that have pretty profound implications. But stepping back for a second, I teach uh, law students, graduate students, and undergrads, and they fall into the range, age range, of somewhere between 18 and, say, 30, generally. And I commonly begin classes. I teach classes like international rights law, I commonly begin the classes by saying, asking them how they feel about being members of a war generation. Um, my classes do not typically look like this audience, in fact. I say that because the standard response I get is a sort of surprise. They've never thought of themselves as part of a war generation, even though they've come of age at a time when their country's been at war. In fact, they've come of political consciousness and paid attention to news during a period when the country's been involved in a a series of complex, costly, uh, dangerous wars. And I don't think that the same response we would find among students if we were in the World War II generation, or for that matter, in the Vietnam generation. And this isn't about drones per se, but it's about one of the core implications of expanding drone use, which is one of the main things that drones allow is a significantly reduced domestic cost for engaging in warfare. Because drones don't put at risk any U.S. personnel, it's substantially less costly for a drone operation to go bad, or for that matter, for a drone operation to to be launched. And as drones become increasingly more ubiquitous, we will see more, potentially more and more of these operations. And it requires us to reflect on what sort of war we want as a society. What sort of war are we, what kind of war making do we want to be a part of? And very briefly, our society is it. Oh, okay. We'll catch up with the later
4: okay. point. Okay. <laughs> I want I want you to come sit on the floor so they can't miss you. Okay. So we know exactly how much time we've got. Dessert's Sorry, time. but we had a clock, and as luck would have it, did um, so, good. We're we're ten minutes behind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a structured debate, so kind of <laughs> shaky. Um, you guys have five minutes to split, as you wish, take a little extra time because I want to be fair to everybody, uh, to make your case. And is the case you want to make, let me just ask it this way, that we're doing a difficult thing right? Does that make it?
7: So let me talk a little bit about, about what we're doing um, and, and process. And I think to have an informed debate about this, it's really very important for us to understand process. And it's actually very hard to understand parts of the process because you have two agencies, uh, two government agencies, involved in the, use, the lethal use of drones, one being the, the CIA, allegedly, and the other being the Department of Defense. All of that stems from legal authority. So I'm a law professor. I have one hammer. I'm going to hit on the law. Um, and so where does, where does this legal authority come from? Uh, Go all the way back to the September 11th attacks. Shortly after the September 11th attacks, Congress passes an authorization for the use of military force that authorizes the President to use all necessary and appropriate force against those individuals he deems responsible for the September 11th attacks. Think of that as a small group, and then watch as it gets, as legislation does, it gets worked through the courts, and the courts expand the authority largely because of the Guantanamo litigation to mean Al Qaeda and associated forces. And so we have the authorization for use of military force, the AUMF, um, authorizes us to use force against Al Qaeda and associated forces. It has expanded through judicial interpretations. You get a little bit of support from Congress because Congress has continually authorized, through appropriations, funding for both what the CIA does and what the Department of Defense does. Um, And so with this, you give a bunch of uh, government agencies a mandate, and they go out and they act on it. um, And bureaucrats start making lists of people to kill. And so who goes on those lists? You have really two categories of targets. Those targets that fall squarely within the authorization for the use of military force, and then those targets that the president deems under his covert action authority, um, it would be in the national security and foreign relations interest of the United States for us to engage. Those targets, the covert action targets, Get, uh, get struck by the CIA. Other targets get attacked by the Department of Defense, uh, oftentimes the Joint Special Operations Command. And so on this list, how do you identify who you're actually going to put on the list? We're actually pretty careful about creating the names of individuals who go on the list. We identify who they are. So there's an identification process. We vet them. What's their function? They're a senior bomb maker. They're the most senior bomb maker. We look at uh, what would be the impact of attacking them. They're no longer able to train people to make five bombs a month. Or what's the impact of not attacking them? Uh, they'll continue to be able to train individuals. They might, even, uh, th- they might even grow with impunity and feel like they can continue to launch attacks. And there's also a validation question, all of which, by the way, this happens inside the bureaucracy. Does attacking this indiv- individual support the national objectives? Is the target operational? Are they still a member? Are there any political or cultural side effects? Um, is there an impact on host state public opinion? This is the process that we follow for targeting. There are fights inside uh, of our government about whether or not particular names should be on target lists. Um, It's not transparent to us that those fights are occurring, but it's actually occurring inside government. And ultimately, um, this is documented in electronic targeting folders with records of approvals, changes in intelligence, collateral concerns. If you're worried about the strikes that occur in Pakistan, and you're a member of Congress, for example, the only way that you can see the ETFs is, is if you're on House or Senate Intelligence Committee. And the public, by the way, has no awareness of the existence of the strikes because, the, because, uh, because it's denied, basically, as a matter of covert action. And I think this might be the one point of agreement for us where there really is an oversight challenge because of the two different agencies that are engaging in this. And I'm going to turn over to my, my partner, okay, General you. Marks. You've got a, you got a couple minutes, General.
2: Thank you very much. I'm sorry, Eric. A couple minutes. Got it, got it. And Ambassador Volker, thank you as well. Um, I come at this from essentially two perspectives. One, the technological perspective, rather practical, and from the intelligence process, having been an intelligence officer all my life. um, I grew up with unmanned aerial vehicles and with drones. As a battalion commander over 25 years ago, I commanded drones. and I did that as brigade commander and, and I was Uh, As the senior intelligence officer, when we went to war in Iraq, I was responsible for all things Iraq, and among those many tasks, it was building the architecture so that we could move this video, these drone videos, so that we could share situational awareness. So I have a very practical and muddy boots and kind of broken finger perspective. Um, The one thing I can state with absolute certainty is the technology that has gone into our drones has gotten incredibly precise and better, and every generation of our manufacturing and development has really been a light year development in terms of enhanced capabilities. So it's a very precise and it's a very capable weapon system. From the intelligence perspective, to your very point, we don't do a pretty good job or we're pretty careful about this. We're extremely careful about who populates these target lists and is based on collection, robust collection of intelligence, fusion of data, analysis of that data, distribution, shared perspectives on different targets. And all governmental agencies that have an intelligence uh, contribution, and all, and there are, there were originally 16 of those, contribute and argue and debate about who populates that list and who, in fact, should be on that list and in what order. So from my perspective, it's a technological capability that we're not ever going to put this genie back into a, into a bottle. It is a capability has to be available to it, to us. But we have to be able to more, I think, precisely define how we're going to employ this weapons system. And we right now are at the very edge of a debate, as the senator indicated, as to whether this is an agency type of activity or whether it's a DOD, Department of Defense activity.
4: Uh, a, lot, uh, a, lot, a lot has been said and there's a lot to digest. I want you, I want you each to take a couple of minutes. Let's, let's, let's do two minutes, okay? Two minutes each side, just react to what they have heard, what you have heard, and that will kind of set the table for where we go from here. Everyone will have laid out basically their position.
5: I only wanna make one point
4: and that is the concern that I tried to
5: describe was a concern about the long-term implications. I believe that we are very good at doing the technological uh, acts, coming up with lists, getting caught into what the counterterrorism center does. The efficiency is fine, but it does, in my opinion,
6: to, to the other side here, is that, is that it, it falls into one of the classic problems of drone discussions, which is the assumption is that Everything related to how we should think and deal with drones assumes U.S. dominance of drone drone deployment. So we know now it's true that right now there are only a handful of countries that have used drones militarily, the United States, the U.K., Israel. But over 80 countries have possession of drones, and it's inevitable that drones will become ubiquitous in their military deployment, which means they'll be used throughout the world. So what do we think? Step back a second. The the, the overall argument here is to say that the targeting mechanism is above board, and in a word, we could call that the sort of just trust us argument. Maybe that's right, but we don't know because it's secret. What would you all think when you open up the newspaper instead of seeing a a piece of a story about a drone attack in Yemen run by the CIA? Um, What would you think if there was a drone attack run by the Chinese government targeting a Tibetan activist in Nepal or in Bolivia or wherever, outside of a conflict zone, which was presented as a national security need uh, with the exact same arguments as are being presented here? How would that feel to you? And then multiply that by all the different drone-possessing nations in the world, what would that world look like?
2: My immediate response would be, to, to, to the very points, would be that We have to have an open dialogue, because the technology exists. Uh, Military history is replete with examples of niche technologies that suddenly now alter the form of warfare, the crossbow to the longbow. And in fact, how we employ those are extremely important. We have to acknowledge that the technology and the capability will proliferate. How do we bring that forward, and how do we discuss it in a very, very open forum? That needs to take place.
4: Can I, let, I mean, I, let me ask a question on that, and let's just take a minute each, I guess, to toss it around. Because um, I read this week about uh, there's an air show, I think it was in Singapore, and the drones. We're like the hot item. Everyone wanted to get, you know, everyone with $20 million, which eliminates a lot of people in this room, but but everyone else with $20 million wanted to buy a drone. And, in fact, someday the, Chine- the Chinese will have a military drone if they don't have one now, and maybe someday they'll uh, attack someone in Tibet. And, and how is that different, honestly, than in your mind, how we would feel if we woke up in the morning and found out that a Chinese fighter jet... Had or a bomber had dropped a bomb on a village in Tibet. Why is it, why is the drone different? Why should we think about it differently if, in fact, we should think about it differently?
5: If, if in fact, we think that the model that we are projecting is that we can go after people in places, in places where those people are in countries with whom we're not at war, it, propo- it, it poses a problem. That ultimately is not going to be because of the drone technology. It's not going to be limited
4: to us. So, so it's, I think it's that's not the, the point. technology; it's the rationale of exactly. using the technology. Yes,
7: right. our underlying policy is that we are at war with Al Qaeda and associated forces, and it's a transnational armed conflict that follows those combatants wherever they go. And so, as a consequence of that, um, we have to recognize that other nation states may very well take that position. However, there is an argument that would then just prompt a discussion about the underlying legitimacy of their arguments. And so um, nonviolent Tibetan protesters being bombed by Chinese drones or Chinese aircraft would subject the Chinese government to the types of of criticism that we would expect, whereas there's not a lot of reason to criticize the United States for targeting members of Al-Qaeda, who the United Nations has even declared and all nation states have signed onto, believing that Al-Qaeda is a force that should be countered, sometimes with military force or other times with law enforcement means. And so it it goes to the legitimacy of the underlying cause, and that's why I think it's a specious argument to sort of compare what we're doing to what would we think if the Russians did it. If the Russians are indiscriminately bombing civilians, it's very different than where we are purposely not trying to harm civilians, and we're purposely going
6: after a legitimate enemy.
4: I did cable TV. There's no such so, thing as a specious argument, OK? <laughs> so,
6: so one of the sadder stories of Guantanamo that you may be aware of was the fact that several Uyghur, Uyghurs, Muslim minority in China, were picked up and held in detention, even though it was clear to all of those in the US government that they were not posing any threat to the United States. Uh, their status is, it's an odd story, but you know we don't have to invent uh, false cases. In fact, they were in uh, training camps gaining armed insurgency skills to then go back and challenge the Chinese government. Now, perhaps it wasn't a substantive challenge, but I don't think it's difficult at all to imagine that, uh, that if the justification for targeting individuals all over the world outside of traditionally understood war zones becomes a question of trusting states' evaluation of that targeting process, uh, you know, why wouldn't multiple states engage in all sorts of actions? And if they were, they would certainly be able to say that their secret criteria were as valid as our secret criteria.
7: But the idea that I shouldn't target al-Qaeda because the Chinese abuses its own people, to me, is the false argument. Um, That doesn't present us with a real
5: choice. I I don't think we're disagreeing. Last point on this is that the judicious use of drones is something that none of us, I think, would disagree with. But the procedure that is secret, therefore not not to be uh, shared, and the indiscriminate use that we, unfortunately, in my opinion, have engaged in, does leave us open to criticism. Let me
4: do two, one, one thing and then ask a question here that will, if you all have questions, I, there are two microphones, one on each side of the room, and if you kind of wander that way, we will, I promise you, get to them. I, I just will ask you graciously to ask questions as opposed to make statements or, you know, because otherwise I have to be the bad guy and I just, this is enough, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so there's one there, one there, okay. I, I want to ask a couple things first that have come out of this that jumped out at me. The word indiscriminately, Ambassador, you use the word indiscriminately. We use these weapons indiscriminately. Uh, General, do we use these weapons, in your view, indiscriminately?
2: Not at all. Not at all. Indiscriminate, uh, not the connotation. I think that the definition would be very, very loose implementation of of, uh, a certain capability. The process as described in terms of populating the target list is very, I would say, dogmatic, It's very doctrinaire. We prescribe to some very high standards. And because all of that data is uh, classified in nature, albeit there may be some open source or some unclassified data, but the product that is derived from that is classified, often to the very highest levels, it's, it's going to remain secret. The perception then is that when we use drones, the perception can be, and the ambassador has indicated with, with his bespoke experience in pa- Pakistan, nobody else can speak to that, is that there was an, uh, an element of indiscriminate use. I would argue that in order to simply, the, the decision to launch and employ a drone against a known target is, any, is absolutely nothing close to indiscriminate. Okay.
4: Ambassador, when you use the word indiscriminate, honestly, I got like a little goosebump thing happening here. You, you, do you really mean indiscriminate the way I use the word?
5: You, you wanted this to be a good debate?
4: I want, yeah, I do. Let me, be very, sure. uh,
5: let, let me be very straight with you about this. And that was in that, let, let me correct that. When it is perceived as indiscriminate.
2: We've got an issue. We've got an issue. Yeah. And
5: because of the use of what we called signature strikes, where many of the criteria of which you spoke were less clear, and certainly because of the secrecy of the program, less open to debate or less open to public scrutiny. We ran into a problem that we were perceived as being indiscriminate, and that the political blowback was indeed something that undercut our overall goals
4: in the region. Right, And that's actually where I'd like to to go next, if I may, and that's a kind of do we win the battle, lose the war kind of question here. There's a story today that there was a drone attack in Yemen and that uh, and that uh, innocent civilians died, which may or may not be true. Right. It may or may not be true. There there may have been innocents who who died despite the the, the per- perfection or or. or uh, improvements in the technology or maybe that's just what they say but that's the story that's out there around the world today and we are saddled as a country with that story. Have we Did we win the battle or lose the war in trying to get people to be with us in this complicated long-term struggle? General? It's very, professor? It's very
2: difficult when you're in the United States people are going to take shots at you all the time. It's the fact <laughs> of the matter. It's very, it's very difficult. The 12-12-13 strike in Yemen, um, those that were killed may or may not have all been members of Al-Qa- al-Qaeda and or affiliates. The difficulty that, that the administration has to deal with right now is that if you release all the data as to who they were, that gets into a lot of classified sources and methods that becomes problematic, and the nature of the use of the of this weapon system. If all of these were civilians, we're probably not going to know that. So it's frankly, it is a debate that's going to take place, and there's no easy answer. So we we could have, in fact, won that very tactical engagement and lost some ground. That's the cost of our engagement, and in this particular posture, and going after Ms. those targets.
4: Mr. Ambassador, Mr. Ambassador. Professor, is that what makes you nervous here, that we're winning lots of little battles and running the risk of losing some larger national security war?
5: The point that I think we would agree on is that in this case, because of the way the debate works on an event like what happened in Yemen, there is a gap in what we can speak about in public, to foreign publics, with our elected representatives and that does pose a big problem for our long-term strategic goals. I would argue that the debate about the debate that we're going into is what we have to have have so that when we get involved in cases like this, the public is is, is aware and the foreign publics are aware of what we are trying to achieve because it is messy and it is difficult, but unless we have more of a debate in public, it is going to increasingly appear that we are achieving certain things and giving more away. Yes. Yeah, go
4: ahead. That saves you from saying uh, something stupid. Yeah, go ahead.
7: You you brought up um, the Yemen strike. The Yemen strike was a, a Joint Special Operations Command strike. So it was a military strike. It took place amidst a debate about whether we should transfer this authority from the CIA to the DOD. So you're seeing part of this debate is the bureaucratic infighting. The DOD can't do it as well as the CIA can. And there's another contrast, too. We've been talking a lot about Pakistan. But if you look how things are done in, in Afghanistan, ISAF is, tra- uh, our, our forces in Afghanistan are transparent about civilian casualty incidents, when strikes happen, and they have a, trans- a semi-transparent process. They don't give you the details, but they let you know that there is a process that's in place to investigate civilian casualties. And when those civilian casualties occur, there's a reparations process that's in place. That's what you get when you put it under DOD and you have Armed Services Committee oversight. When you put it under Title 50, the intelligence community, nobody's allowed to acknowledge that the strike existed. So you can't even have a public debate about it and talk about the things that we're talking about. And that's a real big problem with the way that we've gone forward. It made sense early on that the drone was there collecting the intelligence, hey, put a missile on it. It also made sense for deniability purposes in Pakistan specifically, to not have boots on the ground. But as we look to the future, to a more sustainable policy, the CIA probably needs to get out of this business if we want democratic accountability as a nation.
4: And and I I, I want to get some questions from the floor, but let me just ask you to consider something, and we'll come back to it, which is to most of your fellow citizens, whether it's the the military or the CIA is a distinction without difference. bad guys get popped. The people who did 9-11 pay. I mean, I, I, I hate reducing, and I don't really mean to be glib on this, something horribly complicated to something that pathetically simple. But I really believe that this is one of those gut issues to most of the country. And when we start talking Title 10, Title 50, Title this, Title that, I just want to know the people who killed 3,000 of my fellow New Yorkers. (coughs) Hey. Sir. Am I up? Yeah. You're the sir. I was, yeah. I'm
8: sorry. Skipland,
4: Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I think, to me, the real question is, are we complying with all of our laws, ethics, morals uh, that this country has? Uh, it's nice to comply with a, with a congressional mandate to go off and attack anybody we want to that has an al-Qaeda uh, name tag on, but uh, launching a weapon into a foreign country, the last time I checked international law, was an act of war. Uh, have we gotten uh, authorization from the foreign countries to uh, launch these attacks into these countries? I don't believe that's true.
3: And okay. the question is... Thank are you. we complying with all of the laws?
4: Okay. i think all right the question is, is are we complying with the international law here somebody lawyers. i think i thought we were
5: give it to the lawyers so so the, so we, we have like three the, lawyers
4: here someone's got to know lawyer. this so the international
7: law arguments are one is the controversial one is actually the one i advanced before which is that the united states is involved in a borderless conflict that uh follows the enemy wherever it goes But you don't have to go that far if you believe that Pakistan is involved in its own internal armed conflict against individuals in the federally administered tribal areas, which they are. They send troops in there all the time. They have fights on the ground. They send their air force in. And then the only leap that you need is, has the Pakistani government invited us in to their internal armed conflict, in which case we're a participant in what's known as a non-international armed conflict? That would make it lawful. They publicly say We don't want you here. And then in private, you could read the WikiLeaks. They said, please bring on the drone strikes, and we need you to hit the targets in the following areas. Yemen's an easier case. The Yemeni government has come out and said, we want you here, continue doing it. If you don't buy my argument on the Pakistan case, we were flying out of Pakistani air bases until 2011. A drone takes off with bombs on it. It comes back. The bombs only go one direction. And so you can figure out that everybody on that, every Air Force cadet here knows that, we know exactly what was happening. We were there with the consent of that government operating from their, uh, from their territory.
2: And so the, so short, the short answer is yes. Yes, well, lawful. Sorry. <laughs> they, don't let lawyers talk, right? I'll go on forever. So they,
6: you know, one of the core principles of, of the laws of war, it's part of what the US calls law, law of armed conflict, and what the world calls international humanitarian law, is distinction. And distinction, in a word, is what allows military forces to legally kill an individual. So classically, in in the law of armed conflict, soldiers wear uniforms, we're surrounded by many of them, and the purpose, the legal reason, or one reason, is so that you can be legally targeted. You can be distinguished from civilian populations, and in a situation of war, be targeted. So really briefly, I'll try to, drones are changing the way, the nature of war, the innovation of drones, is not that they deploy missiles, the innovation is that they provide constant surveillance, live, permanently recorded surveillance, that then gets collated with other data, human intelligence data, signals intelligence data. And what's most interesting as a kind of response to whether or not these strikes are legal is the signature strike idea. And in signature strikes, individuals are targeted, not based on existing understandings of distinction. They don't have uniforms. We don't actually know who they are, as in the case of a personality strike. So you know who Mullah Omar is. You know who Salah bin Laden is. So there's a collation of data and the data gets brought together and determinations are made, such serious determinations that people are categorized to be killed. Now, just think, this is part of a transformation of the world where we're all data points and they can be collated together. And think how nervous Americans are about the way in which their data points are recorded and the way that can be used. So just imagine as all of this gets ever more sophisticated and the outcome of those data points is a signature strike, that leads somebody to be killed and transforms the entire mechanism of distinction so that that becomes understood to be a way of targeting someone. So we need debate and discussion and serious, open uh, clarification of how all this should operate, not just with US forces, because in fact, the laws of war are globally, uh, they apply to all global militaries. And we need to clarify this.
4: Um, That's just the the simple.
9: Yes. The CIA doesn't comply with the rules
4: OK.
8: Question mark. Uh, yes, sir. Hi. Um, I'm Ryan Fadashik, a student at Desert Vista High School down in Ahwatukee. Uh Professor McNeil, you talked about how exactly we vet these people that are the targets of the strikes. And General Marks, you talked about how um, you rebutted the word indiscriminate in strikes, but there have been l- numerous media outlets like Reuters, New York Times, Economist, etc., that have talked about secondary strikes as, as in immediately upon after we launch a drone strike a few hours or even up to uh, half an hour after which we launch another strike. I was wondering how exactly that process, how that process takes place and under what conditions we launch those strikes because oftentimes there have been claims that they kill several first responders. So, um, so, first,
7: so the first set of strikes, I think you accurately uh, characterized my position. So then, uh, there's a second series of strikes that uh, the the veterans in the room would be familiar with: uh, circumstances where you're in direct fire combat with the enemy, or uh, time-sensitive targets where you would be calling in close air support. And the examples you're talking about uh, about rescuers, you still have to comply with the law of armed conflict to ensure that the individual that you're targeting is a lawful target, you would just be operating that under a compressed time uh, uh, sequence. So how might that happen? Um, I strike, an enemy tar- I strike the, the leading enemy in a caravan, um, and the three vehicles behind it, because I've had persistent surveillance, I've been up on their phones, they're just coming from the rifle range, they're all in a convoy together, I very well might have enough pieces of data to put together that I don't know the names of those individuals, but I know that they're members of that armed group. Just like if I go to Fort Bragg and I see a bunch of guys at the range, I don't have to read their name tape to know that they're probably in the 82nd Airborne Division and they're probably soldiers. That's why they're carrying rifles and they're at the range. My degree of certainty is lower on that type of strike, but the law of armed conflict doesn't require proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It requires reasonable certainty, the reasonable judgment of a commander in that circumstance. And so in the circumstances I described it to you, I don't think it would be unreasonable to target those individuals. And contrary to sort of popular belief, first responders are not entitled to any special protections under the law of armed conflict um, if they're lawful targets. And so, okay. that's a short way of answering your question. I'm, I'm sorry. Longer Gen- than the moderator. D- let, me, let
4: me, general. That sounds like a slippery slope we just got on, where we, we kind of we change the rules a little bit. We relax the rules a little bit, is what I heard him say. No. We don't need the same level of specificity. That we needed the first time, the second time, am I? That's that's not what I heard. Well, he nodded. Yes, that's what he said. So <laughs> I, I,
7: certainty. I'm, I'm nodding to say I understood you. This oh, is okay. Called, this, is
2: is called, <laughs> this is called acquiescence. The there's a there's a level of of certainty, and I think that's what you were talking about. Intelligence, the production of intelligence, the collection of intelligence, the production of intelligence, its distribution doesn't revert back to zero. You know, the 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 intersection. At all times, there is a foundation of intelligence upon which you build. So, fleeting targets and target what we call targetable intelligence is extremely important because it could, in fact, that particular target could, in fact, disappear, go away. You may lose the opportunity to strike. So, you've got a foundation of understanding that you've achieved. You go from data through intelligence to et cetera. You kind of go through this linear progression, it can take place very quickly as Greg indicated, in very truncated time periods, you've got a level of certainty. And it might not be the same level of certainty that you achieved upon the first strike. But you've confirmed that that foundation of intelligence has not been altered. Ergo, you make a decision to go after some of those other targets. So is that a slippery slope? I think it's pretty solid ground.
9: Hello. This is Javeria Thareed. I'm from Pakistan. I'm a journalist. And uh, a lot more discussion is going on related to Pakistan. My question is Mr. Mr. Cameron and Mr. Daniel. Uh, we all know and you agreed that the drone technology is very important to kill the militant like Taliban. So are we willing to accept that the innocent people have to die to bring peace? Or is this acceptable that the innocent people have to die in order to bring peace? And how would we promote human rights in this scenario? My – I just want to ask you this question, and uh, one more, Uh, is regarding the trial of the Musharraf. Do you think it will impact the relationship of U.S. and Pakistan, and the situation with Nawaz Sharif government? Thank you so much. Uh, Let me take
5: those on. First of all, I think the second question is not really germane to what we're talking about today, so I'll pass on that. But the first one is that um, I would take issue with the – the argument you make that uh, there is a need for innocent people to die in order to win. There is no intention, I think, that any of us would say. There's no intent to kill people who are innocent. The argument we're having, and the discussion we want to work on, is how are we as certain as we can be, not only that the people who are targeted are people who are legitimately targeted, but in a broader sense, whether that act of doing it, however we do it, serves the larger strategic goals that we and our friends, and I would consider Pakistan our friend, I would like to see a stable, prosperous Pakistan that we and our friends have as goals for the region. So the point is, we can talk about the technology and the issues that we, that we, that we, um, uh, that we employ. None of us would argue that innocent people should be targeted in, for any reason. The question we're having is, how effective is this? How does it further the goals of the United States and and its allies in trying to reach a, a kind of stability that's, that's good for everyone.
2: We don't, we don't target innocents. Just to be very, very precise, to put a real kind of a, a, a dot on this, you don't target innocents. Do innocents die? Sometimes they do. And within the process of the targeting that's taking place, there's a collateral damage estimate that's done. And it's overseen by a number of you know, legal, legal chops all the way down to include intelligence observations. So a decision is made, a go, no-go decision is made based on largely what's called the CDE environment. What does the collateral damage estimate look like? And if it's far too high, the decision more often than not will be no-go. So innocents are not targeted.
4: Um, let me ask for a minute from each of you on something here, and then we'll go to this side.
2: They're not innocent.
4: I, I, I don't wanna, I, Anybody's ever seen pictures of drone, the, the controllers? It's like watching a, a weird video game, but it's not a game, it's real. Do you have any concern that it makes the killing too easy?
2: Why would you want to make killing hard? I want, I think, all
4: right, let, let me, all right. How about, it makes war too easy. How about that? I want to make war hard, I, I do. I want, the I, decision, want is, that's right. I want, a, I want a full public policy debate on whether or not, and the implications of, and I'm just wondering, I'm not making, I'm not taking a position, I promised I wouldn't, and I won't, okay? You'll never, you won't You will be able to beat it out of I me, mean, General. <laughs> But does it so in some way detach us from the 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 process, the worst part of the this process, that it 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 harms our soul
2: in some way. It, it, Daniel, if, if I could just very very briefly, Daniel made the point of um, limited domestic cost, uh, which really gets to the, the intellectual thread that brings you to the moral discussion about conflict. And that is, it, is it more moral if I make a decision to go to war or engage, is it more moral for me to look you in the eye before I stab you in the neck, or can I do that from distance and not put myself at increased risk, yet still achieve the same end state? Um, the decision to go to war has to be uh, an exceptionally difficult and arduous process. Where we have migrated over the course of the last decade is I, would, I could argue intellectually that we are in a continuous state of conflict. And we will be, through all of your promotions up through the grade of 05 and 06, that for the next th- three decades we're in a constant state of conflict. So how do you engage, if you, if you assume that's correct, how do you engage and how do you o- employ force in that type of an environment?
4: Professor, take a minute on the question.
2: So one of
6: the ironies of, of drones is that they're both distanced in that the drone pilots, and in fact drones aren't unmanned, they're, they're teams of people that are needed to run a drone. There's signals analysts, there's, there's the maintenance teams, and there's, you know, it's a, it's a massive operation with a lot of people. But one of the odd things is that it's both very distanced in that drone pilots are literally thousands of miles away from where the drones are deployed, and yet it's exceedingly intimate. And if you interview drone pilots, as I have, you'll find that they know their targets with a level of specificity and detail that's almost unheard of in modern warfare. They hover over communities, they watch people. They don't just watch them involved in military activities, they watch them playing with their children, going to the market, all of the things that take place during a period of intelligence gathering. And, and then after a drone attack, they hover over and do a damage assessment and see the mangled bodies and sometimes are even present for subsequent funerals. It's an extraordinary intimate process And yet, it's also a process where all of the US personnel are separated from the impact by an enormous physical distance. And this is another element of the changing nature of warfare. It's both closer and more intimate and more complex in one way, and yet, it's physically distanced and separated by the mediation of technology. Over here.
4: Oh, are we?
6: Okay.
9: Uh, My name is Soraya, and I'm a fellow at the Next Generation Leader Program of the McKinn Institute. Uh, My question, I will ask this question from um, a foreign point of view, because all the arguments that you've put forward are in favor of protecting the United States, their interests, their people, and everything. But look at it from an outsider point of view. You have this incredible, precise technology that is completely... Uh, more advanced in quote as compared to normal traditional warfare and so because it 's so accurate the margin of error that you allow yourself to have becomes uh, a, becomes something of a lot of scrutiny so you have a precise technology and any casualty that comes as a result of that technology will be looked at more severely than uh, in a traditional warfare, because in a traditional warfare it's more obvious. So uh, bearing that in mind, do you think that you are achieving a greater goal of reducing or increasing people who hate the United States and what they are doing in some countries? Protecting the American interest, of course, but how do you think people are perceiving you out there?
5: i I'll take a stab at that. One of the issues here is that Uh, you're mixing the question of the way that uh, a war is carried out with the broader foreign policy aims of working with other people in other countries. And I would argue that you have a point. We have to put these things into context. It's not that we don't want to protect ourselves in the best way we can. And given the fact that we were attacked and that we have this weapon, the judicious use of this weapon, is one of the most important things that we can have. I think what we're talking about today is, how do we do that and what you suggested should be part of that? What is the way in which that is perceived, not only by Americans, but by foreigners, as something that is reasonable? I would argue that the secrecy that has been part of this does prevent us, as a diplomat, it prevented me from engaging with the Pakistani public, for example, in making the case for why we're doing it, not being against doing it, but making the case for why we did it in, in that way. So you raise a valid point, but it does mix something more than just drone and the drone issue. It has to do with foreign
4: policy in general and the way that we deal with foreign publics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask in, in your response, if I may, it, it's just one of these, it's, it's a terrible conundrum in a sense, that on the one hand, it's hard to argue with the ambassador that if we could make the case more publicly, we might mitigate uh, some of the blowback that we get when things go wrong or when people just say things go wrong, whether they went wrong or not, okay. On the other hand, to do that is to sacrifice methods, operations, all, all sorts of things that, we, that is not in our national interest to give up. Are we just kind of trapped in this and then we have to accept there's gonna be a degree of blowback and that's just the way it is? Are you asking me? No, I'm not, actually. So, uh, In this are, case.
7: There are two dimensions to this. Um, first, with regard to the specific question, I, you know, the, the, America is, is somewhat cursed because of our blessings. We have the financial resources to employ precision technology. And because of that, we have a moral and legal obligation to use it if it's available. And we have the resources to make it available so that almost every uh, piece of ordinance we drop is precision-guided whereas a country with less resources could drop a dumb bomb. And so if they're your ally, they can drop dumb bombs, but we can't. And that's, and, and that's actually a good thing. right? That, if we can make war, when we, when we make the decision to go to war, if we can make it more humane, that's a good thing. The second sort of uh, point about the transparency uh, Ambassador Munter hit on this, it's, it depends on the, the, the strategic goal. right? So in Afghanistan, If you want to drop a piece of ordinance um, prior to a pre-planned strike against a named target, and you expect one civilian casualty before dropping that bomb, there was a point in time in 2009 when the McChrystal Directive came out that you needed a four-star general's approval or the SECDEF to sign off on that strike. We just slowed down and weren't dropping ordinance anymore because winning hearts and minds was a decision that that was part of our strategic goals. Now, if tomorrow the North Koreans roll over the border, you're not going to have a civilian casualty number of one. You're going to be pushing those decisions because of the op tempo down to the company commander level, down to the platoon leader level, to make decisions on the spot about civilian casualties. And it all the, our national, political, and strategic objectives flow into our military objectives. And that's something that's oftentimes missing from the debate from those who have, who have never worn a uniform and don't understand the connection between the politics, our goals, and what we're doing on the ground. Um, And it's tough to answer it in any one abstract sense, because our objectives in Yemen are different than our objectives in Pakistan and different than our objectives in Afghanistan.
2: It really is, to bifurcate this, you've got the counterinsurgency strategy and you've got a counterterrorism strategy. Two different things. In Pakistan, it was CT. In Afghanistan, it was CI for the the longest time. Um, That dictates how you engage and how you accept and then work with the perceptions the blowback, the reactions that occur. And Ambassador, I, don't, I didn't mean to be rude
4: there. You, were an, you, you did look like you wanted to say something.
5: No, I mean, the point here is that, I'll, I'll just repeat what I think my colleagues are trying to say in a different way, which is that we do have to make sure that we've read our clause of it. That we, if you're going to engage as a military person, that the point of what you're doing in a military endeavor is toward a political goal. And the political goal, I would submit, as the questioner submitted, involves taking into account the perceptions of foreign friends, if indeed we feel that's part of our own security.
6: Can I say one thing in relation? Sure. So from the two uh, um, foreign voices we've heard, one thing of the Pakistani journalist, I forgot your name, but it's got to be right that the US respects human rights law legally, the country's legally obligated to respect this body of law, and so when you bring up that point, that should be a fundamental baseline for any of these discussions. Uh, but linked to that, I think linked to what you're both suggesting, is that the rule of law and adherence to the rule of law can't just be something abstract that exists behind closed doors. This is true in our own lives. We, we trust our government, we, we believe our government not only because of things we can't see, but actually because over a period of time, there's relationships of trust whereby you believe that that entity given power, will manage that effectively and based on a kind of rule-based system. right? So there's an enormous cost for the US to be seen largely in the world as, a non, as, as an entity that doesn't abide by rule of law principles. And there's an enormous gain, I think, by doing those things that make drone deployments be understood to be more rule of law abiding to the degree that they are. And there may be some debate here as to the degree they are, but certainly, where the perception is severely against that, there's an enormous cost to it.
4: I just, I, just, I just want somebody to tweet a question, because I'm too old to have ever actually said, we count this as a tweet.
8: <laughs> uh, good evening, Senator, General, Ambassador, and gentlemen. Um, my name is Rochelle Edwards. I'm a midshipman at ASU. Um, my question is purely moral. So this question is going to be based as um, from one human being to another group of human beings. Um, with the use of drones, do you find that it takes away a human being's self of um, sorry sense of self preservation and mode of um, protection when you use a drone against unarmed people, whether they be of another military or not? Does it take away the humanity um, and the ability to protect oneself? And what are like the moral or end or ethical um, problems behind that?
2: My, my answer is that um, engagement of armed conflict, whether it's by use of, of drones, some other standoff weapon system, or up close and personal, is an incredibly ethical moral debate that we all need to have. And that needs to be a debate you have a priori before the decisions on whether you're gonna employ that force and you've exhausted every other means to try to resolve the conflict. Hi. uh,
3: My name is Paul Hansen Matev. I'm a citizen of the state of Arizona. Um, Is it constitutional, or more importantly, is it right that the current president, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and also a man who prevailed over an audience member with us today who was a former prisoner of war, is it right that that person has a kill list with United States citizens on it, in violation of judicial review, due process, and the age-old principle of habeas corpus. It's directed first to the two lawyers and then to the ambassador and the colonel. Thank you kindly. Get I mean,
6: if Get a U.S. The... citizen joins a, a foreign military in a conventional war, the fact that they're a U.S. citizen becomes irrelevant to whether they could be targeted, right? So, U.S. Joined, citizen joins the the, the Wehrmacht and is fighting in the Second World War against allied forces, right? That that doesn't seem problematic. What really that question gets to the heart of is, what's the status of that individual as a US citizen? And that gets, really, that just brings us back to the same discussions we're having as to as to under what legal condition can people be targeted.
7: So I, the, the keeping of a list, to me, um, I'd rather we had a list than not a list. And in fact, our our current process, at least as the Attorney General gave it at at his speech at Northwestern, involves intra-executive branch review. It's not just placing uh, it's not just going out and finding the person indiscriminately. It's actually an extra level of review that non citizens don't get. So, I guess if I were a citizen of the world uh, uh, versus Arizona or the United States, I'd look at it and I'd say, well, why do US citizens get special treatment? And that's actually a decision that we've made, I think, in part to foreclose judicial <coughs> review. But the idea of judicial review in in warfare is something, I think, new that we've come up with. Think back to the Iraq War. It was very contentious. People sued to try and stop the idea of going to war itself. And the courts looked at it and said, this is a non-justiciable political question. The president and the Congress decide this, and they're accountable to the electorate. If you can't have a court review the decision to go to war itself, Should a judge be reviewing individual targeting decisions, be they for US citizens, or should the judge be reviewing bridges? Which bridge should it be? And where do judges come from? They're just lawyers. I already talk too much. I'm the lawyer everybody hates, right? (laughs) And and what would I be doing if I were a judge? I would be getting appointed to a judgeship Coming, coming from maybe a bankruptcy decision or that recent employment law case, and then I go, oh, what do we got on our docket now? Oh, a targeting decision. What do I know about targeting? Not much, but let me take a look at the file and make a decision about whether or not it's appropriate in warfare for us to do it. And when I get it wrong, I have lifetime, a lifetime appointment. I'm unaccountable. And um, if the president, if I shut the president down and I say you can't do it, and the, and the person goes on to kill 200 people in a square in Baghdad, what does the president say? I tried to target the person, but the court wouldn't let me do it. And it allows us to all uh, dodge accountability and push it off onto the court. So to me, I'm OK with that, with that authority resting with the commander in chief, because that's where it is in the Constitution, under Article 2, with oversight of people like Senator McCain and the rest of the Congress. And so that's my, I'm not very opinionated on it, but that's
4: Just, right. <laughs> there's, there's nothing more refreshing than lawyer humility. <laughs> Just to be clear on this, because I got this lecture earlier actually, it was the American, there's a different set of rules in play for the American citizen than the non-citizen, correct?
7: As a matter of U.S. law.
4: As a, a matter of U.S. law and practice, there is a different set of law, a different set of rules. We look at it differently. Okay.
8: Thank you, sir. My name is Michael Perry, and I'm a cadet here at Arizona State. Um, my question is directed to both sides, but especially to you, General Marks, sir, from the perspective of a military intelligence officer. Uh, we have other options for executing these targets, and I would point uh, most recently in October of last year to the capture of Anas Libi from his doorstep in Tripoli. Or more notably, to the uh, killing of uh, Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Sir, do we run the risk sometimes of simply killing these targets and not exploiting the intelligence they have and the intelligence on the objective? And does that sometimes outweigh the benefit of simply killing these targets and removing them from circulation? And, sir, how do we strike a balance here between simply playing whack a mole with terrorists in our counterterrorism campaign? and uh, exploiting intelligence. That's a military
4: Thanks, term, whack-a-mole.
8: <laughs> what year are you? Yeah. I'm a senior, sir. So I'll be commissioning in May. Oh,
2: great question, great question. I, I must say, When I was a senior, I was not nearly as close as you were. It was not on my list of things I was talking about. Um, there, is a, there is a fundamental initial decision that is made. And if you, if you get to the point where this particular individual is on that list, is on that target list, and has met all the individual criterion to be there. There's a capture or kill decision that's made. And it has to go to, there are a lot of considerations. So to keep it simple, it is what is the risk to try to capture? What is the risk to try to kill? How do we want to try to exploit? Do we think we can exploit this individual? Or do we think there has already been a mechanism in place where we might have already gotten enough and that the risks are such that we need to have a kill decision versus a capture decision. In Libya, a decision was made to capture. There was a desire to have some exploitation. Also, that was a very congested area. There were CDE considerations. We're not going to strike the guy. We're, we're going to conduct a very simple, and if you look at the details, an amazingly simple plan with incredibly high risk, but it was worth it to put our hands on him. So that was the, the Libya dis- discussion. So there was no... There was a very high, a very tight filter that we had to go through in order to make that decision. Um, relative to Osama bin Laden, almost three years ago now, in May of '11. Um, I think the decision to commit the SEALs was there needed to be the DNA verification that it was him and that he was either alive or dead. And the, there was a possibility that he was going to give himself up. That didn't happen. There could have been a very strong uh, argument, had it not been UBL, that you could have used uh, a drone in that case or some other means to just level the compound. But we needed to know that it was UBL. So I think those were some very tactical decisions that had amazingly strategic implications.
4: Just the, um, um, the we in that, we needed to know. Who is the it's we? It's the
2: administration. The it's world the, needed to the, know. The world needed to know. <laughs> Our administration <laughs> needed to be able to state with certainty, this is the guy. We validated it. Well, and he's you,
5: you've all seen the movie uh, O Dark Thirty. And you know the role when the ambassador in place, played by George Clooney, is an incredible hero? You remember that part? <laughs> right? No, you, you don't remember that part because it wasn't in the movie. But, uh There's nothing like
4: Foreign Service Officer <laughs> humility. <laughs> exactly. Right.
5: No, but but, but uh, the point here is also, uh, what uh, to, to to add to what uh, the general has said, there is always going to be a calculation not only of the effectiveness in the terms of uh, intelligence, but there's going to be the effectiveness or the effect of any act on uh, the politics, the policy in the region. And one of the things you have to reckon with is that if you drop a bomb on Abbottabad, which is a settled region outside of the tribal areas of Pakistan, there will be a different reaction in the country and in the world than if you have what is seen as a more surgically uh, clean. Uh, uh, act as what we had. So in other words, it's not just the question of uh, intelligence, it's also the question of politics. Uh, Let me me just add one one tiny thing,
7: given this audience. I mean, look on your shoulder. Are you a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine? Are you a cadet or midshipman? That decision is not just at the general officer level. My eyes are failing me, but look like you're going to be an infantry officer. About 18 months from now, you're going to be downrange somewhere. And you're going to have to tell a squad leader to take a particular building. And they're going to have to make a decision about, you're going to have to make a decision about whether you're going to need indirect fire to support you while you fire and maneuver. Your squad leaders are going to have to make decisions about whether they're putting 5.56 through a window where there might be civilians inside, or they're going to slide their finger forward and put a 203 round through the window. And they're making decisions about capturing people. They're making decisions about civilian casualties. And we're pushing that down to the level of the 18-year-old Straight out of basic or AIT, or the 23-year-old just out of the officer basic course in Ranger School, and so hopefully Ranger School. Yes. And so, and so, we're we're talking about this at such a high level because of what we do as as the United States of America with with principals and deputies at the National Security Council deciding about target lists. But it, the law of armed conflict entrusts that one of your squad leaders might make that decision. One of your one of your just fire team members might make that decision, and so. Um, When we make the decision to go to war and we do it with a broad authorization for use of military force that goes on forever, we trust that at some point in time at the tip of the spear an 18-year-old is making a decision about whether a bad guy is going to die and whether or not that might also inflict harm on civilians.
8: Thank you, gentlemen.
4: This is something to think, I mean, I teach 18-year-olds, you teach 18-year-olds, yeah. Five minutes. Okay. Thank you. I almost lost track of you altogether. Um, let me take one more question and then give our panelists uh, uh, probably, unless I think of something I want to desperately ask, uh, opportunity to wrap it up.
7: Evening, gentlemen. Uh, in lieu of time, we're going to ask ours as a joint question. You can answer as you see fit. I'm Mitchman Zykan. I'm uh, at
8: Arizona State. My question, My question relates to this idea that you talked about with the disconnect of the kind of drone warfare, and as we improve in technology, we tend to separate our public, affects the, uh, the effectiveness and the longevity of the drone, the drone strike program. Thank you, gentlemen.
4: So really,
6: um... So, we bring up a really fascinating point that people who are not familiar with drones may not be aware of, which is, if you're fly, flying jets out of a base in a foreign country, you live on that base, your life is is full of base existence, eating with other... Members of the military in a facility, a drone pilot, say, you know, in, in, in a, an ordinary city, living on a U.S. base, might leave a mission, walk out of the base, get in their car, go home, go to a baseball game, eat dinner with their family, and it's an entirely new understanding of what warfare means. And I, this, I don't know that this fits into the theme of this discussion exactly, but it certainly has a lot to do with the ways in which war may be changing. And I don't think we know how to manage this. What does it mean for people to effortlessly, or not effortlessly, to move back and forth between a place where they're where they're engaged in killing and surveillance to a place where it's the ordinary life and they're at some fast food restaurant or wherever, a park? So th- that issue is profound. And I, we don't know how to make sense of it, because this is probably the beginning of an entire new mode of projecting force where there's all kinds of ways in which we'll see warfare going in this direction. It's the beginning.
4: Is um, I'm going to move towards, I just, this is my editorial observation. It's amazing to listen to um, all of you of uh, 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 the ROTC folks who have had questions, because honestly, I, I talk to my students all the time about, about journalism and war, and their country, your country, our country has been at war half their lifetime, half of your lifetime. And it's amazing how much smarter you guys are, how much more attention you pay. You have skin in the game. And skin in the game counts, as every Vietnam era kid knows. Skin in the game matters. But it's really impressive. And you've you've added immeasurably to the quality and the intelligence of the conversation that's gone on tonight. Thank you. take each of you professors uh uh, start with you a minute and address try and, and really a minute like a real minute like a honest minute um because you were kind of on this the nature of warfare is changing so we have this thing it's pretty new still where does the policy go or where would you like it to go moving forward
6: So I think there is a sense in which drones are changing warfare. It isn't the drones themselves, right? It's what the drones represent. And for some odd reason, drones are the only weapon system, I think, in this 13 years of conflict that's garnered public attention. I think what we need to think about, we've seen other weapon systems and other innovations in warfare regulated and discussed, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons. This shift to data-driven warfare is substantial and transformative. I can't give the, the answer as to how we ought to engage with all of this, but there are significant policy and legal implications, and they should be put at the forefront and they should be openly discussed, and I think that should, at, to the degree that that happens, that will be a benefit for the society.
4: Ambassador, are there specific things you would change in this policy going forward?
5: No, I would just echo, I think, uh, what my colleague has said that the way in a democracy that you come to the right answer about this is through open discussion obviously there are uh, there's gives, there there's there's give and take there's the question of methods and 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 um, and the and the, the the legitimately secret things that the people in in the intelligence world need to protect but we are not doing ourselves a service if we engage in this new era of warfare without a very healthy public debate Otherwise, that which America stands for as a country of values and of democracy around the world uh, is in peril. Professor? Um, Three things I would do.
7: Um, First, I would introduce legislation. If I were capable of doing so, maybe we could find someone. We could Um, get someone uh, (laughs) out. I got the guy. That requires the Department of Defense, because I think DOD does it right, and so I want their data to be transparent. Number of strikes, anticipated casualties prior to the strike, and actual casualties that were measured after the strike. The military has this data. They maintain it at the, at the brigade level and at the division level. I want it published in an annual report to show that they're doing right and to shame the intelligence agencies into either being more transparent or getting out of the business of, of doing these strikes. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing that I would do is that with regard to the intelligence community, I would, I would think about um, what, what's happened with the NSA and the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. And I would have a group of security-cleared people do an independent audit of the CIA's data and their strikes and their procedures and write a declassified report. They see the data, they write a summary of the report, and it gives us some information. And nobody's on the hook for that in the legislature or in the executive branch because it's an independent board that comes forward and, uh, and puts this information out. And then the final thing is I would want greater transparency with regard to who are the people that we are targeting. The State Department has a designations list where we'll, we'll publish when you're designated as someone that you can't do business with because you're, a, because you're a terrorist or a terrorist group. I want that to be part of the targeting process so at least we know the groups who we're at war with. And we could talk about the AUMF another time, but it's time to stop with the AUMFs that go on forever. We need to have sunset dates on those. We need to sunset the AUMF, the existing one, and have reviews on an annual or semi-annual basis about whether or not we should continue to be at war. So that was four things.
2: General, bring us home. Not, not to be facetious, maybe we should publish the, the list of those that are being targeted. You might see some behavior modifications. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, seriously, if I was in Iran, if I was in Iran and I was sitting at the dinner table and I said, Mom, I want to be a nuclear physicist, I, I think my mother might say, you know, son, you might want to change your desired <laughs> profession. you got yeah. a short short life. You don't um, think
4: they know, huh? <laughs> you don't think they figured the danger of that job out yet? Nobody uh, wants to be
2: number five in Al-Qaeda. It's yeah,
4: a, yeah. It's like <laughs> or number three is a really bad well, gig, too. Very,
2: very shortly, I would say DOD, uh, the, the subject in the VERD is DOD must take over the, the drone targeting process. Um, all of, the, all of the, you know, the, the, the points that you made, Greg, are absolutely germane to that discussion. DOD knows how to do it, and they, and they do it quite transparently. And I think that's the very first step in order to make it easy. The difficulty with having the CIA do it, having lived in this world, is that the CIA, uh, central intelligence, does not always share those, the sourcing that they have for their intelligence. And if I'm in DOD and I'm pulling the trigger, I'm accountable. I need to know why, who, how it all came together.
4: Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. You didn't didn't leave it all in the green room. Um, Thank all of you for uh, coming and sharing um, this at at Cronkite with us. As I said at the beginning, I think this is the kind of thing Walter would feel great about. And finally, Senator McCain, there's only slightly intimidating to do this in front of you. Thank, Thank you and the Institute for having us.
1: I I would like just to add a couple of thank yous. First off, thank you to our moderator, uh, Professor Aaron Brown. Excellent job. Thank you to our audience. I think it is tremendous that you came out for this on a Thursday evening, especially to our young men and women in uniform. Thank you for coming and thank you for your service. And lastly, uh, thank you to our debaters, and thank you, Senator and Mrs. McCain, for making all this possible. Thank you.